So let's turn to God's Word at this time. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, one of the easier books to find. If you basically flip your Bibles open to the middle, it generally falls to the book of Psalms. If it doesn't, probably just turn a little bit to your left. We're looking at Psalm 96 today, page 934. Psalm 96, page 934, as we talk some more about this core value of, of worship. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in in his truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we have heard your word. Now we pray that you will make it real to us. Sink it deep into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, may the words that I speak be your words. May the words that we hear be your words. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to apply them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may want to keep your Bibles open this morning as we'll be reflecting on different words of the psalm. Friends in Jesus Christ, I never really thought that I would say this, but uh, when Jackie and I were in Europe this past summer, I actually got tired of seeing churches. It just was too odd an experience for me. I mean, there were churches everywhere, these beautiful structures rising high up into the sky. And those buildings, they did exactly what they were supposed to do, right? You would walk into them and your eyes would immediately be lifted up and you would be struck thinking about the grandeur and the greatness of our God. But after a while, that experience just became depressing to me. Depressing because, especially if you went on a Sunday, the tourists far outnumbered the worshipers. 
These places were, were worship spaces without a congregation, churches or sanctuaries without any people. And that's quickly becoming the story in, in our country as well. Our stadiums and our arenas are, are full of sports fans, but our churches are becoming more and more empty. And it's such a contrast with the picture that you get in the book of Revelation. There, whenever we get a, a glimpse into heaven, we see, we see great multitudes that no person can number. And what are they doing? They're not watching football. They're not attending political rallies. They're worshiping God. Multitudes that no one can number. And they're worshiping God. Revelation shows us that the worship of God is the one thing, the, the one commonality between this life and the next. There will always be worship of God. And this is why the church exists. The church exists to do in this world what we will do uncoerced, what we will do naturally in the next. We will worship our God. As we look at this topic of, of worship this morning through the lens of, of Psalm 96, I, I, I hope to give us a little better idea of what it is that we actually do in this place and why it's so important. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. Three things. First of all, worship right-sizes God. Okay, worship right-sizes God. Second, worship is public, not private. And third, worship brings hope to a world without hope. So let's begin with this idea that, that worship right-sizes our God. Okay? Verse 4 tells us of, of Psalm 96 tells us that great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. Our God is worthy of praise. He's worthy of our worship. And actually... That's what the word worship is really all about. The word worship comes from the old English word that means worthship. Worthship. And worthship means to identify the true value or the true worth of something. In Christian worship, we identify and we declare the true value of our God, His true worth. And we do this, and this is necessary, because our God is undervalued in this world. Our God is undervalued in this world. Now, oftentimes, we sort of like that idea that something might be undervalued in this world, don't we? If you've ever watched uh, the Antique Roadshow on PBS, that's what people are actually hoping for the most that they have found something that's been undervalued, right? They, they find an old painting or an old vase or an old piece of furniture somewhere in their attic that's been neglected for years, and they bring it before this expert appraiser, and they are hoping and praying that she's going to turn to them and say, wow, this piece is worth $42,000. And they're going to go, oh, I never imagined. 
It was undervalued. It was just sitting in my basement or my attic or my grandma's house. I never knew what it was worth. Friends, in Christian worship, it's our role to be the expert appraisers. We are the ones who know and understand the true value of God, and we are the ones who are supposed to declare that to the rest of the world. There's, a, there's an episode of the, the podcast, Groundworks, in which Dave Bast and, and Scott Jose tell the story of a day, I think it was back in 2007, when Joshua Bell, one of the world's greatest violinists, uh, went down into the metro station in Washington, D.C., and he took with him his Stradivarius violin, and he set out his violin case there on the cement right in that train station, and, you know, that's just like you see many other street musicians do, right? And he began to play a Bach solo partita, some of the most beautiful and technically challenging music that's ever been written. And I looked up the video, and I actually saw the video of this. They have video of this. And, and here you have one of the world's greatest musicians, one of the world's greatest artists, and he's playing one of the most spectacular pieces of music in the world. And what you see is all these people walking by and completely ignoring it, trying to get to their trains, trying to get to that work with their, that look on their face that says, I've got to get to Walgreens. He played almost three hours, and he earned about $43 worth of change. Two nights earlier, he had played that exact piece of music in Carnegie Hall, before a packed house of people that probably paid a couple of hundred dollars per seat. Now, what was the difference between those two events? Well, the difference, friends, is context. Context. People in that train station had no idea what they were seeing or what they were hearing, and so they just walked on by. And friends, that same problem exists in our world today. People pass by the wonders of God each and every day, and they don't have a clue what they are passing by. They don't recognize what's really there, and so they don't cry out, thank you, Lord. They don't say, praise the Lord. They don't say, I want to sing a new song to the Lord. They just walk by God's goodness like those folks who walked by Joshua Bell. And that's why the psalmist calls us, God's people, to sing to the Lord and to praise His name. We are the ones who understand. We are the ones who get the context. We are the ones who know what's really going on in this world around us. When a rabbit in your backyard wiggles his little nose as he munches on grass exactly the way God designed him to do that. And when mountains stand straight and majestic, pointing us all to our Creator. And when trout leap from their streams as if they're trying to get just a little, a little nearer to God. We know what's going on. We know that all creatures of our God and King want to lift up their voices and sing praise to God. It's verse 5. The Lord made the heavens. 
We know the context. Psalm 148 reminds us that the creation that lifts up his praise to God is not just the creation that we see, but it's also the creation that we don't see. It's the creation of the earth, but it's also the creations of the heavens. Let the heavens praise his name. Let the angels praise his name. I think we get a, a picture of that in Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember that scene when Isaiah is sort of ushered into the throne room of God. And Isaiah shouts out, I am ruined. I am ruined because I have seen the king. And obviously, he's ruined by this, this direct vision of God himself sitting on his throne. But there's more to it than that. If you look at that text sometime today or this week, what you'll see is, is there's also tremendous worship that is going on around the throne of God. And Isaiah is incredibly struck by the seraphim who have their wings covering their faces and covering their feet out of shame. And they are, they are shouting to the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says the sound shook the very foundations of the temple. And you begin to see that, that Isaiah, when he says, I am ruined, it's not just because of that direct vision of God, but it's the indirect vision of God. It's just hearing the worship that's going on around the throne of God. What does he say? I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, my lips are not fit to join in with the worship that's going on in heaven. My lips are not fit. And friends, none of our lips are fit to join in. Our lips, too, are unclean. And it's not until God cleanses our lips that we can join in with that great worship that's going on in heaven. But that's the second reason the psalmist gives us to praise God and you find it over and over again in the psalms we praise God for being our creator for his creation but we also praise God for his salvation he has allowed us to join our voices with all the voices of the heavens proclaim his salvation day after day says the psalmist Friends, this is the real context of worship that's going on around us. We see it. We acknowledge it. It's our job to proclaim it to the world. And we do that simply by bringing our voices and lending them to the whole chorus of voices that are praising the Lord our God. Worship is about right-sizing God. Second thing to note, though, about worship is that worship is public. It's not private. Verse 3 says this, Declare His glory among the nations. In fact, the psalmist, and if you think about this, a psalmist from this little nation of Israel, over and over again in this psalm, calls all the nations of the world to worship and to praise his God. And here we see a side of worship, I think, that we try to ignore these days. And yet it's also a side of worship that I think we are very keenly aware of. 
What I mean by this is there is a, a tension that we feel that comes along with public worship. It was a tension that I felt long ago as a little kid, right? When my friends would come to me and they'd say, Pete, let's play basketball this Sunday, or let's play baseball. And I would have to say, I can't, I'm going to church. And that's something that we struggle to say even today. When you're talking to your neighbors on Saturday, or when you're with your friends on Friday night, how hard is it to say, I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm going to church. I'm going to be in church. I'm going to be worshiping my God. It's not an easy thing to say. As soon as it's in our hearts, before it makes its way to our lips, we begin to feel that there's a tension that comes with those words. And that be, that's because worship is about magnifying the Lord. Worship is about magnifying the Lord. Now, coming right off the Christmas season, I think we may remember that that phrase originated with, with Mary, right? The mother of Jesus in her song. Magnify the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify the Lord with me. What does it mean to magnify something? It's funny, when you, th- when you hear Mary say it, it doesn't, doesn't click. But to magnify something is to simply make it larger, right? That's what you do with a magnifying glass. It helps you see things that you can't see so well. It makes them larger. And that's one of the things that we do when we praise God and when we worship Him. We make Him larger, larger for the people around us, for the world around us to see. As we recount, <clears throat> as we recount all that God is, as we tell of His character and of His nature, and as we recount everything that God has done for us and in this world, We magnify the Lord. We make Him bigger for the people around us. And when we do that, we begin to create attention. Because when we magnify the Lord, we proclaim that the jurisdiction of our God is not the jurisdiction of some local deity bounded by county lines. Rather, we proclaim that the jurisdiction of our God goes far beyond Israel, and it goes far beyond these walls and this congregation. In fact, the jurisdiction of our God is the whole world, every corner of the earth. It goes beyond the realms of governors and presidents and even dictators and kings. His jurisdiction extends to our lives, every part of our lives. Not just what we do on Sundays, but what we do Monday through Saturday. His jurisdiction involves our giving, our calendars, our sexuality, every part of our lives. He is the ruler over all of it. We feel that. And when we proclaim His praises, others feel that. 
And that's why we hesitate to say, I'm going to church. It's not as polite as it sounds. In fact, it often comes off sounding like a challenge to any other authority, any other functioning deity in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors. N.T. Wright points out um, something that the first century historian, Jewish historian Josephus wrote. He wrote these words about John the Baptist. Listen to them a moment. He was a good man, and he had exhorted the people to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God. When the crowds around him began to increase, becoming extremely aroused by his powerful preaching, the king became alarmed. Eloquence with such great effect might lead to rebellion. The king, therefore, decided to strike first. The king that Josephus refers to is is Herod Antipas, the man who removed John's head. Herod had come to believe that John was dangerous, and he was right. Because John was a voice. He was a voice in the wilderness that would not be silent. He was a voice that described the ways of heaven right here on the earth. The ways of righteousness, of mercy and compassion. The ways of another king. A king who is far greater than King Herod. And friends, every time we worship in public, we are like John the Baptist. As we ascribe glory to the Lord, we are calling the nations to worship God with us, for He is our Maker. All His creations owe Him worship. And our worship becomes prophetic, doesn't it? It speaks like the prophets, calling all of us to recognize the reign of God and that the reign of God rules over our lives as well. We are that voice of John speaking about another world right here in this world. Now, friends, what I'd like you to think about in this regard is virtual worship. Worship that we all watch on the computer. Something we learned to do quite well during the pandemic, right? Last week, I was out of town myself, and all I had to do was turn on my computer, and it brought me right here among you. Only it didn't. I wasn't here. My seat was empty, at least where I usually sit when I'm not preaching. My seat was empty. Now, there are some ways that virtual worship has been a real blessing, and a really good thing. Most of all, it's been really good for the sick. But there's also a downside, I feel. That is, last week I didn't feel anything like John the Baptist. I worshipped in private, and I was quite comfortable in doing so. 
I sang with the songs, I prayed with the prayers, but you were the ones who came out and gathered your bodies together in public for everyone to see. You were the ones who lifted up a new song before the nations, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You were the ones who were the prophets. Friends, there's a reason that it's so easy to worship in your living rooms. I think it's a spiritual reason. The devil doesn't want material witnesses to an invisible God, to an invisible reality that our God reigns. You ever wonder what it would be like if, if everyone worshipped online? Or if everyone, you know, was traveling and they just turned on their phones while they were in the car? What would be missing? The voice. The voice would be missing. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, all men are like grass. The voice crying out in the wilderness, but the word of our God stands forever. The voice that, that climbs up a high mountain and proclaims to all the peoples, our God reigns. That's what would be missing. The call to the nations to come and worship the one true God with us. Let us not give up meeting together. And so our worship right-sizes God. Our worship is very public. And finally, our worship provides hope. Perhaps you noticed something as I read through this psalm. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of worship. But did you notice where it lands? In the strangest of places. <laughs> The psalmist is you know, he's calling all of creation to praise. He's calling the rivers to rejoice and sing. Over what? And then he ends this way. Our God comes. Rejoice because our God comes. Our God comes in judgment. Our God comes in judgment, in righteous judgment, he says. Now why, in a psalm of worship and praise, why would the psalmist land there of all places? Why land with the fact that God's coming to judge us one day? Well, think of the context of our praise that the psalmist lays out for us. He lays out a context in which all things are bounded by God, right? God is our creator. He is our beginning. God is our judge. He is our end. He is the one who will one day hold us accountable. That idea can be rather intimidating, especially for the world. That this God who made us one day will also judge us. He will also hold us accountable. One day, our world and his world are going to intersect in a very final way. Heaven and earth. 
the temporary with the final, the false with the true, the shadow with the material. And we have to ask, what will that day be like? What will that day be like when God's world finally comes and makes its home in this one? Well, friends, our worship every Sunday brings hope to everyone who asks that question. Why? Because every Sunday we have that encounter. We have that encounter with the living God where our world unites with His, intersects with His. And we come into this place and we're exposed to the reality of our God, to everything that is true about our God, His justice, His love for the poor, His compassion towards the sorrowing, His correction of the wrongdoer, His mercy to the sinner, His encouragement to the humble. All of the realities of God are proclaimed to us. His world is made real and we could sink. We could cover ourselves with the mountains at that intersection because our sins are exposed. But think of this. Every Sunday when we meet with God, we also leave. We leave this place healthy and well. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. We worship God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came into this world, God himself came into this world first to take the judgment of God, to take our punishment upon himself so that we could know his grace, his love, his forgiveness, and we can walk out of here praising the Lord for his creation and for his salvation and in doing so, we give hope to the world that there is a way to survive that final encounter with our God, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone and what He has done on the cross. So people of God, keep worshiping. Do not give up gathering together and bringing praise to our Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, it's you, we have heard, who calls us to worship. You have created us. You have also assembled us together to be your body here on the earth, your people who call out your name. You have enthroned yourself on our praises. You make yourself real to the world through the real worship of your people who are gathered here. Lord, don't let us downplay what we do here every Sunday, for it has world-shaking significance. And Lord, may your grace be declared here, your praises declared here again and again and again. And every time we leave this place, may the world know 
that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can meet with the true God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.